Hello and welcome to the Recovering God podcast. This is a platform to explore issues that affect the faith lives of Christian women. We hope you find this podcast helpful. Hello, Recovering God listeners. Um, it's the Sarah Double Act with you today. So hello, Sarah MH. Hello. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. It's getting yeah. sunny. It's getting warm. I had an ice cream last night at like 10 p.m. Ideal <laughs> choice. Ideal choices. Steady on ice cream at 10 p.m. That's like. <laughs> I know. I know. Living that indulgent life. Oh, anyway, it's good to be back with you. So today we've got um, a fantastic guest with us. We've got Dr. Jamie Reeves. Dr. Jamie Reeves is a public theologian and for more than 20 years she's worked as a consultant, researcher, lecturer and facilitator working in the US, the former Yugoslavia, Northern Ireland and Great Britain. This work has focused on the intersections between theology and public issues such as peace, conflict, hospitality, memory and gender. She regularly speaks, leads retreats, conducts workshops and acts as the theologian in residence with communities who wish to dive deeper into understanding theological frameworks for social justice activism. Jamie serves as the Director of Academic Development at Sarum College in Salisbury, where she's also a lecturer in biblical studies and theology. Jamie is no stranger to podcasts as she's previously co-hosted Outlander Soul, which looks at the Outlander series with a theological, religious and spiritual lens, taking seriously the role fiction plays in fan lives as a sacred text. Jamie is the author of Safeguarding the Stranger and the co-editor of When Did We See You Naked? Published in 2021, this book looks at Jesus as a victim of sexual abuse. Jamie is available for lectures, retreats, workshops and one-to-one theological discussions, the details of which can be found on her website, which we'll link in the show notes. Jamie, you've got an absolute wealth of knowledge and experience and we're delighted that you're with us today. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about how your understanding of God has developed over time? Oh my goodness. That is such a big question. Um, and something that I, I think about all the time, actually, because I'm kind of always tracking like how how things have changed. Um, and I use it a lot in my teaching as well. Um, so for me, I grew up, as you can probably tell from my accent, um, from uh, in the American South. Um, my, my dad um, worked in construction, so we moved around a lot, but American South is, uh, was consistent um, throughout, throughout that area, so Southeast. Um, and so I grew up really conservative Baptist, Southern Baptist, um, because that's pretty much the most common thing there. Um, so it's funny, Flannery O'Connor, um, uh, a Southern author, writes about the Christ-haunted South. And so even if you aren't necessarily, you know, going to church all the time, just you, it, you're saturated in it. Um, and so, yeah, that's how I grew up. The first non-Baptist, non-Southern Baptist person I met was um, uh, a Catholic um, in university. Um, and so that was, that was quite a, a big, big, <laughs> big thing for me. Um, first year of university. So at least it was early enough, but, um, yeah, after university, I think was probably the biggest change in the sense that I, uh, went overseas. I, uh, lived and worked internationally and well in Bosnia, um, for a couple years. So this interfaith setting where religion obviously had done some kind of immense evil, um, but also had done some immense 
good. There were people of faith who were doing some amazing work. Um, and so I kind of learned that the world is, of course, of course it is so much bigger than my small town American South experience. Um, and there's just so many more ways of kind of understanding things. And so part of that is also understanding God and how much bigger God was because here I am experiencing and meeting people who think about God in a completely different way than than what I had ever heard or, or understood. And then also being a woman in a very conservative uh, tradition, started feeling called to teach and to do certain ministry things. Um, folks who wanted me to be the one to baptize them, I wasn't allowed because, well, I had different reproductive organs. Um, and so, um, so, you know, gender inclusive language for God um, and the way in which gender, you know, plays itself out in religion or the way in which religion conceives of it um, became really important as well. So, yeah, things have changed quite a bit for me since then. I have people from my past who now pray for my salvation. And then, yeah, and, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't go back to that at all. Do you have like a position in time, like right now, understanding that our understanding will continue to change? We're all on a journey. But, you know, who is God to you right now? Gosh, who is God to me right now? So much bigger than probably anything I can really kind of define. However, I find myself gravitating toward and and orienting myself toward probably more process theology means of understanding God in the sense that God is in relationship with us. We are in relationship with God. God changes as a result because that's the nature of relationship. You know, when you are in relationship with somebody, if there is no change, then it's not really relationship. They have an effect on you. You have an effect on them. There's a, you know, kind of, it's not transactional, but, you know, a mutuality to um, to that relationship. And so in, I see that so much more when I'm reading, particularly Hebrew Bible, but because um, that's where I spend the most of my time. But for me, it's knowing that, that God is seeking and is affected by us as much as we are hopefully affected by God. We all end with a divine shrug. Oh, sorry, the divine shrug of divine mystery. The divine shrug? That's a great way of describing well, it. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I, am I going to die on a hill about the Trinity? Actually, no, I'm not. Because I yeah. really don't know. And I think it's the don't know part of it that's become really important for me and my own spirituality is and prizing doubt, not as a denial of faith, but just to say, you know what, all of this is so much bigger than what I could ever conceive of myself. Mm -hmm. That's why I need everybody else. That's why we need the other traditions to be able to kind of say, oh, yeah, that's actually really good. And I can see that. That makes sense to me. That's That feels truthful. So, yeah, the divine shrug is a, eh, I, this is what I think now. I don't know. We'll see. I think there's a real freedom in not knowing the answers as well. I think have, like having had a background in, you know, very evangelical theology, the pressure and the kind of, yeah, just the, the extreme weight to know the answers and to tie it all up neatly. Actually, when you 
walk away from that and come away from it and realize there's such an open spance within theological thought it's like oh gosh I feel so much lighter absolutely to not have to carry that burden or I mean I see it in my students as well this um well and and you know friends uh back in the day where we would just tie ourselves up into knots to try to make sense of some kind of theological question and it's like why what mm. what purpose actually does this the answer to this question serve for you how does it change your life if it does by all means keep working at it but if it doesn't change how you interact with the world um, if it doesn't make your life and the lives of others around you better, and it's just a thought exercise, I, my patience for that is is slim. Yeah. I always go back to this phrase from Peter Renz of theological acrobatics, and I, I keep coming back to it again and again, of this tying ourselves up in knots and thinking about theological acrobatics, and I love that. I keep coming back to it. We're really keen to talk today about how we read and interpret scripture. So we're going to get to like some specific narratives later. Uh, but can you begin by telling us some of the challenges we might face when we read the Bible? Yeah, well, you mentioned Pete Enns' work and the theological acrobatics. I, I really appreciate his stuff. For him, I, I would echo, I think, some of the things that he said as well about just kind of the Bible being this really beautiful, complicated, genius collection of works. Um, and what often happens in a um, more conservative um, reading of scripture is that believing that the Bible speaks with one voice um, and that it is without error, inerrant, um, or it's infallible, meaning it, it won't fail to do what it's meant to do, as it were, um, without really taking into account the role that humans have played in it. Um, so, you know, growing up for me, it was as if it was um, talked about that uh, I often, you know, kind of tell my students as if the the whoever was writing it um, was kind of an, an automaton, and they were just kind of writing and you know a, a manuensis for you know whatever it is that God has uh, is speaking to them, and they're just writing it down without any kind of thought um, to it. It's pretty clear that that's not actually how it happens when you really start taking the Bible seriously in the sense of reading the actual text and how it's been put together. It speaks with so many different voices and is this kind of anthology, I think, of the ways in which groups of people, um, so not just one tribe even, but various schools within those that tribe, um, have sought to understand and make meaning of God and of their relationship with God and how that is shifting and changing as time has gone on, how the tradition changes and how, oh, well, this worked now but or then, but maybe we should do it this way now. And so, again, kind of in thinking about process, that, that you know, religious practice is also always changing. Tradition never actually is always the same. And they're also trying to make sense of their place in the world and what it is that they're supposed to be doing and what it means to be people who are called by God's name and what that looks like. Um, so it's full of, I think, both good examples 
um, as well as examples of what not to do. You know, Samson, we teach the story of Samson to our kids. Samson is not an example of what you should be doing. And if we read Judges, it's, I mean, it's really clear, actually. These people, a lot of them, eh, JL with the tent peg. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, but a lot of them are not heroes and they are not, you know, examples to which we should be following. And so just kind of being engaging your brain a bit more, actually, when you're reading the text, um, which funnily enough, you know, um, uh, my uh, Hebrew Bible professor in seminary, um, Mark Biddle, um, and I, I give this to my students. So, it, you know, it, it lives on. He said, you know, God didn't call your heart and fail to call your mind. Your mind is part of this as well. Um, so let's see, you know, these horrors and these traumas and these difficulties that um, are in the text as well. They're part of life, and they're but they're also a result of injustice. And so just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean that it's okay. And so kind of dealing with those difficult texts is, oddly enough, where I find a lot of meaning. Uh, I was going to say joy, but it's not joy. Um, but it definitely depth and meaning. And I, I like to be challenged. I, and when something's uncomfortable, it, it kind of pushes me to dig deeper is why am I uncomfortable about this? What is it that this is saying that um, is important? I think. Thank you, Jamie. I wonder if you think it's possible to ever approach the Bible with any sort of neutrality. So that's the first part of this question. And I can already see your face. So I know the answer to that. And second of all, it, you know, if that is or isn't possible, how do you approach the Bible? So what, what questions are you asking yourself? What are you thinking as you approach the text? <laughs> I'm laughing because I know you've probably heard me rant about this in a lecture. Um, <laughs> no, we cannot approach the Bible from a neutral position. None of us are neutral about anything, really. Um, and and I think that's been a really lovely development um, and realistic development, really, in the last kind of 15, 20 years in biblical studies. I mean, 20th century biblical studies, especially were, you know, white, Protestant, eh, German, maybe, men who were saying that they were reading the Bible from a neutral position. They weren't. They were just reading the Bible from a white, Protestant, German, male, middle-aged perspective. And so this idea that we are objective or neutral, I think, is just really naive at best or really harmful at worst. So I think the best thing that we can ask for the best thing that we can do is to note take you know take stock of what it is that we are bringing to the text um so i often do a um, self it's called self inventory with my students to kind of let it goes through 20 questions you know what newspapers do you read when you um you know what kind of political positions do you have where you know gender wise how you grew up how did people talk about the bible when, in your past um all of these kinds of things that are kind of sitting on your shoulder or you know those various lenses that are that are on these spectacles that you're using to then read the text they're there they're present and so let's be honest about those they're not bad they're not good they just are and once we're able to be honest about that then we can see how people from other 
positions from other classes, from other genders, from other sexualities, from other somewhere else in the world when it's related to climate or whatever, are able to see something that we're not able to see because we're just not in that place. We just can't see it in that particular way. But once we do, we're like, oh, yeah, wow, I've never thought about it like that before. Um, And so that, I think, is where the kind of the genius of it is, is that we're always learning from each other because none of us can encompass everything and yet none of us are neutral either. And so we, there's so much to learn um, uh, from the text and from each other as a result of that. You've done some specific work on Sarah and Hagar that uh, we've had a bit of a read through. I mean, it's fabulous. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how it perhaps differs from a more dominant reading of that story? The work that I did around Sarah and Hagar, um, it kind of stemmed out of a couple um, a couple things. So, of course, growing up in the American South um, and issues around racism and Black Lives Matter, um, it felt important for me to kind of start dealing with that legacy a bit for myself and the way in which I read the text. Um, and then there was an article, just it was just a magazine article in Sojourners that was talking about how white women often put themselves in the position of the hero of the story. And so I think she was talking about Esther. And she said, you know what, you you might be Esther in the story, but you also might be Haman's wife. And so, you know, kind of think about where you where you put yourself in the story. And so I suddenly kind of started thinking about the ways in which white feminism or just feminist theology in general, but again, predominantly feminist theology is white feminism because womanist theology has done its own thing within um, black female feminist theology, if that makes sense. So I was thinking about the scholarship around Hagar, and I was like, how much I have resonated so much with Hagar. And, you know, she's held up as, you know, this hero in feminist theology and going, okay, so if I take this challenge seriously that this author has offered, then maybe I'm not Hagar in this story. Who might I be in this story? And so then I was thinking, oh, well, then I might be Sarah. So what's going on here? I mean, this is all part of a bigger package, obviously, of acknowledging your own place, despite the anti-racist work you might be doing, despite your commitment to to social justice and, and all those good things, to also say, you know what, there are also things that I participate in, willingly or unwillingly, that still perpetuate this system. And so unless I'm willing to acknowledge it in some kind of way, change isn't going to happen. So taking that seriously and going, okay, so Sarah had her own problems. She was treated horribly <laughs> um, by Abraham, you know, and, and then there, of course, there's been loads of scholarship about whether or not she really was his sister, all that kind of stuff. But regardless of whether she was or she wasn't, she's still basically pimped out. Um, she's still her childlessness uh, question uh, that, I mean, that's huge in the biblical text in Genesis. And, and so I don't want to underestimate the difficulties that, that she as a woman has had to, according to the text has had to deal with. Right. Yet at the same time, similarly in our own context, just because you know women have difficulty, but there's intersections mm-hmm. of difficulty that for some it's even more 
difficult as it were. So, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw's work around intersectionality has been so important, I think, because it's, it's, and it gets misused so much because people think it's just this conglomeration of lots of things and it irritates me to no end. But no, it's about these multiple oppressions, these multiple things that are kind of brick upon brick upon brick that just make the, the load even heavier. So as a woman, you know, I wasn't able to baptize, I wasn't able to preach, I wasn't able to teach in certain situations. So yes, there's obviously oppressions I have experienced as a woman. But because I'm a white woman, my access to power, um, the what is it, uh, Brene Brown talks about the drippings from the pan um, that we that we kind of that we get by, you know, making sure our men are the ones who are in power. So at least we get the, the kind of the, the excess of it. Um, but, you know, women of color are are even further from that. Um, and so, you know, kind of keeping that in mind when we're reading the Sarah and Hagar story, this is not a story of equals. This is a story of one woman having power over another um, and misusing that power, abusing that power and paying attention to the fact that we need to admit that. So, you know, Sarah breaks the law. Hagar had certain rights. Um, Ishmael was the firstborn. Sarah is a perpetrator in this story as much as she is a victim. Um, and so I think being serious about that, taking that seriously and saying, okay, where are the times in which I might also have been a perpetrator? Um, it doesn't deny my victimhood. It doesn't negate the difficulties I might have experienced, but it also takes seriously the difficulties others are experiencing that perhaps I don't have to worry about. So we've explored intersectionality a little bit before on the podcast with our episode on disability, and we also did an episode with Dr. Selena Stone. I am familiar with intersectionality through kind of the study that I'm doing, and obviously with you at Serum, we want lots of listeners who wouldn't be doing academic studies. So, where can they be looking for intersectionality, or how can it kind of be influencing an understanding of intersectionality, be, be influencing their day to day lives in whatever they might be up to? Oh, wow, that's a really good question. Honestly, I think you would start, or at least for me, it makes the most sense to start again with. Uh, with that kind of the practice of the self-inventory. So with that self-inventory, I think, first of all, we kind of take stock, right? And again, it's not positive or negative. It just is. Where are you? What are you carrying? What are the things that shape you, identify you? Mm. And, and you know, I know people resist labels, but labels are really helpful at times for us to kind of figure out what it is that we are carrying, right? And then when... I know it's not just about when we're kind of approaching the Bible, it's just life in general as far as intersectionality goes. But I think there are some questions that are really helpful. You know, we can, well, let's talk about it in the sense of how we apply it to the Bible, but I think it applies to all of life, right? So how does this reading affect me? Like, how does it, how does it change how I live? But then it's like a ripple effect outward. How does it affect or change the my my relationships with my immediate family, with my my neighbors, the people who are you know in closer proximity to me, my congregation, whoever those the you know my friends that kind of stuff? Then how does it affect how I uh, think nationally, how I operate nationally? So you know how does it affect how you vote, um, what you think about certain policies, those kinds of things? 
and then internationally as well. So it kind of how we read, how we operate, how we think about our identities shape all of those reactions and all of those relationships and and, and doing this physical motion of this kind of ripple effect that goes goes outward. So we are never, ever operating in a vacuum. We are always having some kind of impact um, on something else. The other part, I think, is about does does whatever it is we're thinking about. So, you know, again, if we're talking about reading the text, does it bring life or does it bring death? Does it support life? Not just my life, but everybody's life. And does it enable people to thrive or does it um, does it shut things down and and and, you know, contribute to the not flourishing, whatever the, the word would be in that case. Also, also thinking about, is it supporting the status quo? Is it supporting those who particularly have power right now? Or is it empowering others? Um, so how is it supporting the status quo? Or is it working to disrupt and bring forth something new? Is it life-giving? And is it restorative? And in whose interest is this reading or is this uh, this idea? Are the people who have power going to say, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's a good that's a good thing, you know. Um, so if you're preaching to a to a group of hedge fund managers or, or whatever, if they're all going to be happy with what it is you're saying, then I would say you might want to consider what's up with that, you know. Um, uh, otherwise, you know, are the powerful supportive of what it is you're saying, or is it the the not powerful, the marginalized, those who are dealing with those intersections that we've talked about, whether it's sexuality or or disability or class or whatever. Are they saying, no, actually, what you're saying is true, that that is right. Um, so who's saying what you're saying is right? Uh, who's determined uh, with, the, with the phrase from Gail, Gail Yee, which is uh, who's a biblical scholar, it comes up with these questions um, is who determines the veracity of your reading? Who says this is true? Um, and I would always want to err on the side of those who don't have power, um, who are marginalized. Um, there's plenty of other people who can say it's true for the powerful. I'm not interested in that. I will do it automatically, I'm sure, because of who I am and the power that I hold. Um, and so I'll be you know, honest about that wherever I can. Yet at the same time, I want to orient myself. I want to practice the discipline of constantly kind of questioning, well, is this helpful who is this helpful to, and in, and how might I read this in a way that that brings life and is true for those who maybe aren't able to say it themselves, or signal boosting those who are saying this and shutting up myself as a result. Also, that's so rich, and I feel like uh, it'd be a really good idea if you're listening and you're at home, pause it, write down those questions because I suspect they're really rich ones to go back and back to. I know I've used some of them before, and I found it really helpful. So I'm thinking about this in relation to Sarah and Hagar. So we've talked a little bit about why we'd want to identify with Hagar because yeah. it's actually more comfortable to identify as the marginalised character because then we can feel comfortable in our victimhood and we don't have to change everyone else has to change exactly so we've talked about that a little bit 
The other thing as well, I think we've kind of talked a bit about is how there is then a separate position, which is saying we don't see ourselves as Hagar because, you know, look at us. We're so woke and we're so, you know, our <laughs> white fragility comes into place. Yeah. And we go, OK, we know we're not Hagar. And then we talk about how bad it is that we sympathize with Hagar. Mm-hmm. And we talk about because we feel discomfort with what more marginalized bodies than ourselves are telling us mm-hmm. the third position is admitting that we're sarah mm-hmm. and i suspect a lot of us get caught in the second position where we say okay we're not hagar but i'm definitely not sarah because i'm too mm-hmm. liberal for that or exactly. i'm too good for that and this is where you get into i don't know if you've read nice racist excellent book on that kind of thing of, I'm just too nice yeah uh, and I've done the work and yeah. all this sort of stuff and so, I have black friends yeah, yeah all yeah. of that kind of stuff and, and I think it's that so but what are the implications of doing this what are the implications when we refuse to see that we may be Sarah and I'm the irony of doing this for two Sarahs is not lost on me, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so I hadn't even made that connection. That's hilarious. Yes, I was all the way through. I was like, oh, this is a, this is close to home, isn't it, yeah. Sarah? Um, <laughs> <laughs> what are the implications of not identifying as Sarah? Oh, well, I think you've kind of already said it in some ways. If not identifying with Sarah, then it becomes a case of everybody else is wrong and you're still okay. And isn't the world a horrible place? But, oh, I don't have any responsibility um, to do anything about it. And I just don't, I don't think that's true. I think we are, we are all responsible. And often in a lot of race relations work or anti-racism work, this, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer quote of nobody's free until everybody's free. And recognizing that how much racist structures also, again, if we're talking about kind of levels here, not the same, but also limit white people. These are certain ways in which we operate because we think these structures are the way it's supposed to be. So it's not, again, not the same at all. But there is not... Freedom is not present for anyone when these certain situations are are being perpetuated. These systems are being perpetuated. And so working to understand that in working for others' liberation, I am also working for my own. That my liberation is very much caught up in and connected to uh, liberation of others. So, Jamie, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about where where we see God at work mm-hmm. in this narrative. and perhaps touching a little bit on how we see God traditionally, but also how you would see God interpreted. And also kind of moving on from that, what does that mean for us when we're approaching scripture? And maybe the we can't kind of package it up in a neat package and come out with a lovely result and a kind of, oh, isn't everybody lovely and we should all love God, full stop conclusion. <laughs> There's lots of aspects to that question. So feel free to just kind of jump in wherever mm-hmm. you know you feel appropriate. But yeah. I feel like you have summed up the majority of the sermons I have heard in the last kind of 10, 15, 20 years. Oh, isn't God lovely? Aren't we all just doing really great? Oh, you know, God will provide. Amen, amen. Job done. <laughs> amen, amen. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. In the Sarah and Hagar narrative in Genesis, goodness gracious, I think we don't really notice. We get so focused on, you know, God is providing the air. Um, God is abiding by God's promise and 
that we don't see the really problematic bits about God that's here. So, I mean, firstly, that I think the most problematic is, you know, that first appearance to Hagar, um, that where God appears when she leaves the first time or is cast out the first time. God tells her to return and submit. There has been so much bad theology that's been written, theological malpractice, biblical malpractice that has happened as a result of that passage to justify racism. This this text has been used um, to address runaway slaves, you know, coming from an American context or seen as a rebuke to Hagar, um, which I don't think is the case. Women as theologians, so women of color, mostly based in the States, but certainly um, African traditions too. Dolores Williams was one of the first, I think, to really kind of publish and deal with this particular question. And, and in this case, you know, a God who is asking a woman who is being abused to return and submit to her abuser is really problematic. And Dolores Williams wrote, in this case, survival is the most important thing that if Hagar stayed in the wilderness, she and her unborn child would have died. And so in this case for a womanist theologian at this point in time, go back, submit, live amongst the fat of Abraham's tent for a little bit longer for another day and, and then get out later. They interpret it in a way that supports life not the best of life, understandably so, but at least live for another day. The value here is around survival more so than flourishing, because you have to have one before you have the other, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, as it were. But when you are using the text to tell someone to return and submit, when it is not a case of survival, when they do have a chance of surviving without returning, then by all means, do not tell them to return. There's an issue there that I think not necessarily meant by God, but has been used by readers to justify certain positions that I, I think, like I said, are, are theological malpractice. And as far as kind of the the nice, neat endings and applications, I find the older I'm getting, um, the more I appreciate the short ending of the Gospel of Mark. And I wish it ended there. I wish there wasn't the longer ending. I wish it ended with people running away in fear. And that was it. Because to me, that's, uh, in some ways, that feels so much more true. Not to say that the, the longer ending that come, you know, that we think has been an addition uh, is um, not true. But I wish there was more space in how we read the Bible and in how we deal with the text in our churches that gives space for doubt, for fear, for the fact that things aren't tied up in neat little bows, that life is difficult, um, and sometimes there is no easy answer. I find, you know, when I'm watching TV or reading a book and it, you know, it does end well. And I'm like, oh, I'm really satisfied with that ending. So like Blue Lights is a new series on BBC. I lived in Northern Ireland for a while. So, you know, it's about the the police service in Northern Ireland. Had very satisfying. I'm not going to spoil it for anybody. But very satisfying last episode for that season. How realistic was it? Hmm. 
I don't know that it was. And so I was internally, I'm kind of wrestling with the fact, yeah, that felt really good. But at the same time going, yeah, how, I don't know whether or not that actually might have happened. And I think the Bible also does that. It resists neat little packages. It's us that imposes those neat little packages on it. And again, that's, it's genius is that it captures all of life and we don't let it speak to all of life. In the stories that we can create and do create, we can do happily ever after. We can wrap them up and it can yeah. give us a set. And the reason I think we yeah. do it is because we don't get to experience it. You never, you never get full anywhere else ever. And that's, yeah. and we talk about in other episodes, no. the nature of trauma and the fact that you never have a kind of after, you know, it's just this kind of coming around again. So, so listeners, if you haven't read Mark 16 and finished at verse eight, try it. Try how does it make you feel to finish at verse eight and to close the book, yeah. to dwell in Holy Saturday and see how what reactions are in our body because yeah. we rush to Sunday. We need to get there. We want to get there. How does it feel to kind of sit with just yeah. they ran away and they were afraid? Yeah. Because so many people's experience is in Holy Saturday and that is it. Yeah. They don't get to experience the Sunday. I would love for everybody to have a chance to do that. But reality is they don't. And so, yeah, I think that's really important. Yeah. And often they're pushed to feel like they should. Yeah. So, you know. Holy Saturday is actually where, you know, you might be dwelling, but actually, you know, may well be, so, what was it? It may well be Friday, but Sunday's coming. Yeah. So you, yeah, you don't get that, that, um, I guess, permission to dwell there. Yeah. So you, you know, leave out, leave all of your emotions at the door and come and worship. Like that's just such a damaging yeah. thing to be said from the front because why would we leave all of ourselves in order to come before God? So, I mean, this has been some really rich stuff. Uh, let's try and distill it down a little bit. So, Jamie, what one line of encouragement <laughs> could you give to Christian women? <laughs> one line to I know. Christian women. I know. One line. Hmm. Yeah. God has called you too. Wow. Um. Yeah. I could expound on that. I don't know how much you want me to with the one line. Uh, but yeah, just we are all called, at, you know, and so in that way, I, 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 the it's not for Christian women. It's for Christian men who don't think that they're called. It's for the trans person who doesn't think they're called. It's to, so it's not necessarily for women, but I do understand that having been there myself, um, that often, you know, you get caught up in whatever it is that society thinks you should be doing. And, you know, now it's not only raising a family, but also working and also doing, you know, all the other things that um, emotional labor and, you know, taking care of the, you know, all of, all of the things that we, we have, we talk about regularly. Um, yeah. But you were also called um, and to not deny that, to not, say I'm not worth it okay here's one thing I will say that um, I think one of the most valuable things I've learned within feminist theology also is to say sometimes 
the sin isn't pride or thinking you're better. The sin is is in not thinking you're good enough. And so I think a lot of women, that is more the problem, is the lack of self-confidence, the lack of thinking that you have anything to contribute. Obviously you do. In thinking about when we're called to to be ministers, you have something to bring. And ministers, I'm not saying ordained clergy. It's about ministering to your community, to your family, to your friends. You know, um, it's it's not necessarily everyone's called to be clergy. My God, what if? Um, but um, but yeah, that there is a role that we are to play um, for ourselves and for our neighbors um, as people who are called by God's name women, men, or otherwise. Thank you, Jamie. That's a really powerful point to end on. So we want to thank you for all that you've shared of yourself and of your research and, yeah, just your wisdom today. We just really appreciate your time and, yeah, joining us today. And I know our listeners will get a lot out of what's been discussed today. So, yeah, thank you very much. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure to be here. (laughs) Really, really happy. Thank you for asking. Welcome back, Recovering God listeners. Um, I'm now joined by Vicky, who is here to chat. Say hello, Vicky. Hello, everyone. So it's me and Vicky today. Sarah's had to go uh, with some family stuff. So uh, you've got half of your Sarah's. I I know it's the worst half. I'm aware of that. Um, (laughs) But hopefully this is, you know, a requisite amount of Sarah content that you could possibly need. Um, (laughs) We'll find out. (laughs) So Vicky, you've had a listen. What do you think? What's some things that jumped out to you? I thought it was a great episode. Um, So thought provoking. Like there were moments where I was like, yeah, you're right. And oh, no one ever speaks about that. So I really enjoyed it. I thought um, her view of us being Sarah was just, Mm. yeah, us as the baddies is something that really interests me and is still quite novel to me because reading the Bible always taught to be the goody. And that's, yeah. And it's really impactful when you do read it like that and you actually see it well actually you know what maybe I could be maybe I have been what do I need to look at what do I need to work on because of that reading it's that moment of oh wait am I the problem like I think I might be the problem (laughs) that kind of full thought of um, I think especially when we think about like our positioning so how I read this in the kind of global north how I read this as you know someone who is fairly privileged and all the rest of it and going do you know what when God is speaking to the orphan and the widow and the, the hungry God's probably not actually talking to me. <laughs> All those passages of don't worry, your day is coming. It's probably not for me. I'm probably, I am probably living in the sun right now. So when God says, you know, the first will be last, I need to think through where that's going to mean I sit at the table. But you're right, that idea of actually, oh, are we the baddie? Like, is the challenge here for us? Because sometimes those passages are there to reassure and to give hope. And sometimes they're there to challenge. And I sort of tried to think about if I'm the one constantly coming away with being reassurance and hope, I think I'm probably missing a bit. Yeah, but also like the critique were always, you know, Paul was always the person I went to be critiqued by or <laughs> do you know what I mean? Not yeah. story, Stories were never about a critique. They were always about being the goody. Yeah. So it's 
so I think that's why where it's so different to try and read it like that because just oh story obviously I'm going to be the good in it whereas if I want a rebuke I'm going to go to the you know the prophets maybe or you know but not not stories so much yeah it is and I think you're right with that story we always read ourselves into the heroine or the hero no one wants to be the baddie and yet we have to consider our position I found for myself when I started reading you know the kind of different stories within scripture whether it's parable or whether it's a narrative and pay attention to who am I associating with who am I sympathetic to who am I thinking I don't like and what would happen in the story if the the reverse happened if I started to be Mm. sympathetic to or I started to associate with and it it creates a really different reading and it's a really simple yet profound way of delving into a, a script piece of scripture or a story more deeply it's a simple change but it makes a big impact massive yeah. you come away like if you come away uncomfortable you've probably met god you know <laughs> yeah definitely your hip's been put out of joint yeah <laughs> <laughs> which we need a bit more of really but i was uh, i think particularly what helps is what jamie was talking about in terms of self-inventory that makes us think about our position and where mm. we're at so those self-inventory questions are yeah i said before the ones i come back to but that question of actually who do I associate with? Who, you know, and how similar am I? And how might my reading be a particular reading that is mm. more common to my culture rather than a universal truth? Yeah, yeah, love that as well. We're not taught to read the Bible like that. I don't, well, some of us aren't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and it's it's kind of a weird way of doing it because we always think, oh, they were so, you know, it was written so long ago and so far away. We don't really have anything. We can't really relate to it. But actually, we do anyway. We always put ourselves in the story somewhere. Yeah. Maybe that's how we read stories completely, right? We try and put it side to side to our lives. What would I do? What, well, you know, that's the nature of stories, isn't it? It immerses you in it. Mm-hmm. I loved her talking about where the power lies. I thought that was really, really pertinent. And <laughs> with everything that's going on at the minute with Soul Survivor and and different areas of church, that's really, really massive. Thinking who has the power and what are they saying about people who have power and what are the people saying about how much power other people have or don't have. That's a totally new way of thinking about power, really. I find this all very interesting. For the listeners who don't know, I'm doing a PhD currently on spiritual abuse, particularly kind of within the Church of England. So how power and abuse occurs in the church is kind of what I do a lot of the time. So it's been really interesting kind of watching how people react to this and people, the way that people react to talking about power it's interesting as well that at one stage we talked a bit more about leadership um, mm. and then a lot of people panicked around the kind of management style of church and they didn't like that. So we've kind of talked about power now. I don't really mind what we call it as long as we're talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's generally my perspective because we do need to talk about the way that power flows and has a, a, and the way that scripture is used in that. So what we see within cases of spiritual abuse and other forms of abuse in the church is the way that scripture is made to be complicit mm. in it. The way that scripture is weaponized mm. to support the abuser's perspective. The abuser isn't always the leader. The leader isn't always the abuser, but to support the, the person's perspective. 
And that's when Mimi really think about what Jamie said about who decides the veracity mm-hmm. of your interpretation, who decides that it's a good one, and how we often limit that to a very small pool of powerful people who get to decide yeah. that your reading was a good one. Mm-hmm. And I sort of, the way I think about it is, if I interpret a scripture in a certain way, and some people agree with it that I don't feel comfortable with. I'm like, who is my bedfellows right now? Like, who am I in bed with? And am I comfortable with that? Because, hey, if they read it in this way and I read it this way, I mean, at times it's a place of commonality and that's lovely. Mm-hmm. At other times, I need to think and reflect on how I've read that scripture. Think about what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's another way of reading the Bible completely. Again, because we're so individualistic and it's such an we've been influenced about an individualistic faith and an individualistic reading of the Bible. We don't often think, oh, this is how I'm going to interpret it. How might other people interpret it? And often a few get to pick. It's talking about weaponizing scripture to support an abusive perspective. This this story has been used to justify why slaves should return mm-hmm. and all sorts of other horrific things. Mm-hmm. We can't approach scripture neutral and we can't interpret scripture neutrally. Mm-hmm. We have to be circumspect in how we yep. do this. I think that's maybe all that we have time for today. Uh, Thank you very much, listeners. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I hope it's triggered some thoughts and reflections. As ever, post on social media. We love to hear kind of how you're interpreting this or reflecting on this. We, We always love to kind of find out how it's landed for you. I think that's all for me today. So that's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Recovering God podcast. Please remember to rate, subscribe and tell others who you think will be interested. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Recovering God or contact us by email at recoveringgodpodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>